Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of addiction, abuse, assault, and attempted murder. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Mothers, the heart of the family, the ones who keep everything up and running. In a perfect world, they're also the ones pumping out an endless supply of love and encouragement. Christine Smith was not that kind of mother. Instead of lifting her kids up with care and compassion, she cut them down with her constant negativity. But despite knowing her mother was toxic, Brookie Lee West couldn't break free from her. Over the course of several decades, the two became so enmeshed in each other's lives, it was almost as if they were one living, breathing organism. And wherever they went, one thing was for certain, a trail of blood was sure to follow. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. In honor of Mother's Day, we're covering a mother-daughter duo whose bond was so twisted, we can't tell you one story without the others. So today, we'll meet both Brookie Lee West and her mother, Christine Smith. We'll learn how Christine's addictions and penchant for violence traumatized Brookie as a child, and how, despite all of that, the two came to depend on each other in adulthood. And if that wasn't enough, we'll also cover what happened when an unlucky man got in between their twisted bond. Next week, we'll follow Brookie as she closes a chapter on love and crawls back to her mother for support. But after years of feeding each other's destructive habits, we'll see what happens when one of the women cuts ties for good. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show.
Whether or not we remember all of it, we pick up on a lot of things as kids. That's because early childhood development lays the foundation for who we'll become as adults. It creates a baseline for what we'll consider to be normal behavior. So if you grow up in a nurturing, supportive household, that's how you'll model your relationships as an adult. On the flip side, if you grow up around abuse, that can be internalized as what's normal. And unless there's a moment of reckoning, the vicious cycle continues on for generations. Brookie Lee West never knew what a stable, loving home or relationship was supposed to look like. From the moment she was born, in June of 1953, she was mistreated and neglected by her parents. Christine and Leroy Smith were both addicted to drugs and alcohol. The young 20-somethings spent most of Brookie's early years partying on the streets of El Paso, Texas, leaving the toddler completely unsupervised for hours and hours. Even when her parents were home, Christine and Leroy were always at each other's throats, fighting about how they were going to get their next fix or Leroy's wandering eye. Despite this, the two welcomed their second child, Travis, in August of 1956. But that didn't get them to sober up, and by the late 1950s, it cost Leroy his job. He was embarrassed by the firing and wanted a clean slate somewhere far, far away. So in 1959, he took the family over 900 miles west to the suburbs of Bakersfield, California. But the move was only a Band-Aid solution to the real problems in the family. Christine and Leroy still couldn't curb their addictions. And Leroy, well, it seems he still couldn't keep it in his pants. No matter how much Christine cried and screamed about his affairs, Leroy continued to step out on his wife. Until finally, in the early 1960s, Leroy walked out altogether. He moved in with a girlfriend and took seven-year-old Brookie and four-year-old Travis along with him. But Christine wasn't on her own for long. Around the same time, she started seeing a man we'll call Danny. He was 30 years old, and like Christine, he was still technically married. And after a few months of dating, he told Christine that he still loved his wife and wanted to end the affair. It sent Christine reeling. All of a sudden, she'd lost her husband, her two kids, and now her boyfriend. She told Danny she needed to get some closure and asked to meet up one last time. Danny agreed, and on January 24, 1961, he made his way into a local bar. But to make sure his intentions were clear, he brought along his wife. Christine, well, she brought along a 16-gauge shotgun. And to make her point, she fired a single shot right at Danny's torso. Thankfully, Danny survived his wounds. Meanwhile, Christine was taken into custody and placed in an interrogation room. To everyone's surprise, Christine admitted to everything. Not only did she confess that she'd fully intended to kill her ex, she said she was proud of what she'd done. No one was going to make her look like a fool and get away unscathed. With that confession, the 29-year-old was found guilty of assault with intent to commit murder and sentenced to 14 years behind bars. 
It goes without saying that seven-year-old Brookie was traumatized by it all. She followed Christine's case as it played out on the news and had to face the fact that her mother was a cold-blooded criminal. Before we continue with the psychology for this story, please note that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to a 2008 article published in Crime and Justice, the effects of parental imprisonment on children can be life-altering. This is due to the trauma of separation, the startling realization that they're related to a criminal, as well as the overall humiliation of it all. And it can lead to a whole host of adverse child outcomes like antisocial behavior, mental health problems, and drug and alcohol abuse. The article adds that these outcomes are worsened if the parent is the mother and if the sentence is particularly long. Given the grisly nature of the attack, the story was headline fodder. So as Christine continued to be on the cover of all the local papers, Brookie was forced to bear the shame of her mother's sins. But Brookie was only a second grader at the time. She didn't know how to process it all, so she shut down. She didn't talk about her struggles to her teachers or her peers. She had trouble focusing in class. Her grades plummeted, and she failed the entire grade. Back at home, Leroy wasn't much help. He'd barely done his part when Christine was around. And now that all the responsibilities rested squarely on his shoulders, he had no clue what to do. He didn't even know how to break the news about Christine's conviction to his four-year-old son. So, according to Brookie, he gave that job to her. He forced the seven-year-old to tell her little brother that their mother was dead and that she was never coming back. It was an awful experience for both siblings, but there was no time to mourn the fictitious death of their mother. Once again, Leroy packed up the kids and got out of town. The next few months were a whirlwind of cheap motels and long drives across the Pacific Northwest. And as far as I can tell, neither Brookie nor Travis attended any form of school on the regular during this time. That's likely because Leroy was still in the throes of his addiction. He continued to go out for hours to days at a time, leaving the kids to fend for themselves. On a good day, they had a few crackers for dinner. Otherwise, Brookie scavenged around the motel, asking neighbors for a handout. According to Brookie, she tried her best to take care of her little brother, but it was clear that both of their childhoods were quickly disappearing. And it seems Leroy knew it too. Because in 1962, he did the most fatherly thing he'd ever done. Leroy dropped the kids off at an orphanage in Bakersfield. At first, eight-year-old Brookie was devastated. She thought she'd done something wrong to push her father to this breaking point. As Leroy made his way back to his car, Brookie screamed after him, promising that she'd be a better daughter. But Leroy never turned around. Brookie and Travis were officially wards of the state. Fortunately, life in the orphanage wasn't so bad. Under the supervision of two stable adults, the kids thrived. They no longer worried about where their next meal was coming from. They also went to school regularly, had friends, and were genuinely loved by their caretakers. But despite her prison sentence, Christine Smith wasn't about to let go of her children so easily. 
1963, after only two years behind bars, the 31-year-old was released on parole for good behavior. And now that she was a free woman, she wanted to be one big happy family again. She tracked down Leroy and the two made up. But when they went to pick up their kids, it was far from a merry reunion. Travis broke down crying, probably because up until this moment, he thought his mother was dead. As for Brookie, she did not want to go with them. She knew leaving the orphanage meant a return to an unstable and unhealthy lifestyle. Not that the 10-year-old really had a choice. Despite the time apart, nothing about the family's toxic dynamics had changed. Both parents still dealt with their addictions, and Leroy never could hold down a job. For the next few years, the Smiths hopped around California until they finally settled in San Jose. But all that moving took a toll on the kids. Brookie and her brother struggled to find their footing in the new city and often retreated into their shells. And just like that, whatever remained of Brookie's childhood was gone. Up next, the Smiths take San Jose by storm. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the podcast series Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican, to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD, and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. When Brookie Lee started high school in 1967, she'd been through more difficulties than any 14-year-old should. And yet, she somehow blossomed into a beautiful young woman with a magnetic smile. Thanks to her striking good looks and figure, she was popular with a long list of boys pining after her. She seemed happy to her classmates. But no one at school knew the truth about her home life. Her family was held together by a thread. It was a living hell, quite literally. Around this time, Leroy got into the world of Satanism. Brookie often stumbled into his meetings with other occultists where they all wore dark clothing and worshipped the devil. 
I can't say for certain how Brookie felt about this development. Some reports claim that she eventually got into the religion herself. Others downplay her involvement. What I can say is that her mother, Christine, was not a fan. Despite her long list of sins, including attempted murder, Christine had a strong pull towards Christianity. Leroy's new hobby only exacerbated the problems in their marriage, until finally, in the late 1960s, the two called it quits for good. They got divorced, and Christine got full custody of the kids. This allowed Leroy to dive further and further into Satanism, as well as his addictions. Meanwhile, Christine took the opposite approach. She became a devout Christian and completely cut out all drugs and alcohol. But the path to a straighter life came with some hurdles. Christine started experiencing a cornucopia of health issues. First, it was her back, then it was her foot, then it was a cough that wouldn't go away. But when doctors took a look at all her ailments, they thought her symptoms were psychosomatic, meaning they were just in her head. At some point, she was directed to a mental health facility, where, according to Brookie, a psychiatrist determined that Christine was a sociopath with psychopathic tendencies. Today, medical experts refer to sociopathy as an antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD. Psychiatrist Dr. Andrew Coulter explains that someone with ASPD persistently has difficulty engaging appropriately with social norms. Symptoms include being cold and callous, not understanding the difference between right and wrong, not respecting the feelings of others, as well as being manipulative. But here's the thing about ASPD. When the individual is a parent, the disorder affects more than one person. In 2011, an article published in Psychiatric Quarterly found that parents with this personality makeup can leave a child traumatized, empty, and incapable of forming meaningful relationships. What's more, these children are also more likely to develop the same personality disorder. As far as we can tell, nothing ever came from Christine's diagnosis. She appears to have continued on with life as always. Knowing this, I can only imagine how difficult life must have been for Brookie and her brother Travis. Christine likely cut down her kids with harsh criticisms, made them question their self-worth, and manipulated them into doing her bidding. Brookie knew this environment was toxic and wanted to get as far away from her mother as possible. So as soon as she graduated high school, the teen enlisted in the army. But the experience wasn't at all what she'd imagined. Remember, Brookie had spent most of her childhood without any form of stability. Her life was unstructured and unregulated. But now, every moment of her day was regimented, and Brookie wanted out. Only months after arriving at basic training, she managed to get herself an honorable discharge. But without a college degree and no other job in the works, the 19-year-old didn't have many options. So she begrudgingly returned to San Jose to live with her mother. As for Travis, we're not sure exactly where he was at this point. It seems from here on out, it was just Brookie and Christine. And surprisingly, the mother and daughter found a rhythm to their new living arrangement. During the week, Brookie worked as a waitress and secretary to help pay the bills. On weekends, mainly Sundays, Brookie tagged along with her mother to church services. 
That's where Brookie met a 23-year-old parishioner we'll call Richard. According to Brookie, he was kind and handsome, and the two hit it off immediately. But then she got pregnant. Richard wasn't ready to be a father. To rub salt in the wound, he questioned if the child was even his. Needless to say, their relationship quickly fizzled out. And in 1974, 21-year-old Brookie became a single mother to a baby girl we'll call Annabelle. But as I mentioned earlier, Brookie had no idea what a healthy home was supposed to look like. All she knew for sure was that she didn't want her daughter to go through the same traumatic childhood she had. That meant keeping Annabelle away from Christine. But her hands were tied. At this point, Brookie was the sole breadwinner of the family, and it seems she wasn't making enough to pay for daycare. So whenever she was away at work, Grandma Christine was the one watching over little Annabelle. It was a thought that not only made Brookie anxious, it made her sick. She had trouble focusing at work, managing the household and keeping her emotions in check. It got so bad that Brookie later said she had a mental breakdown of sorts. She realized she could never be the kind of mother Annabelle deserved. So in 1978, Brookie gathered what money she could and sent her four-year-old to a boarding school hundreds of miles away in Arizona. For the next six years, Brookie only saw Annabelle over the holidays or when she had short breaks. During this period, Brookie distracted herself by jumping into relationships. Two ended in marriage, one of which left her with the last name West. But both unions were over almost as soon as they exchanged their vows. According to Brookie, she had rushed into these nuptials because of her bipolar manic depressive disorder. The National Institute of Mental Health defines bipolar disorder as a mental disorder that causes unusual shifts in mood, energy, and activity levels. Simply put, it causes super high highs and really low lows. As a result, people with this disorder can get lost in the moment and make rash decisions. I can't say for certain if this was Brookie's self-diagnosis or an official one, but I'm not surprised by it. Like I said earlier, due to Christine's ASPD, Brookie was more susceptible to developing a mental illness herself. Unfortunately, by 1984, the 31-year-old had other things on her mind than seeking treatment. Brookie had a mountain of bills. Annabelle's ever-increasing tuition was becoming untenable, but she knew if she stopped making the payments, Annabelle would be back under Christine's care. Once again, that thought made Brookie sick. Her mood swings worsened, and she felt she was on the brink of another meltdown. So she decided the best thing for Annabelle was adoption. Her teachers already thought of the nine-year-old as family and were more than willing to make that official on paper. In Brookie's mind, it was the best of both worlds. Annabelle could continue her education at the boarding school with two supportive adults looking after her. And Brookie would no longer struggle with the bills or have to worry about Christine traumatizing Annabelle. All Brookie needed now was for Richard to sign over his parental rights. But Richard had a solution of his own. Despite being an absent father for most of Annabelle's childhood, it seems the thought of losing his daughter forever was all too much. If Brookie couldn't take care of her, then Richard said that he would. 
Well, that wasn't going to happen. Now, none of what I'm about to tell you has ever been proven, but it's possible that Brookie took a page from her mother's playbook and used fear to manipulate Richard. The story goes that at the start of 1985, he received a letter filled with satanic curses and threats against his family. Around the same time, a man dressed all in black showed up on his grandmother's doorstep and shot her. She survived the attack, but the sequence of events seemed to send a message. And shortly after, Richard signed over his parental rights. If Brookie actually did have a hand in these incidents, it certainly proved that her mother was right about one thing. Violence really was the answer to life's biggest problems. With Richard's sign-off, Annabelle was adopted by her teachers, and Brookie finally breathed a sigh of relief. But it was bittersweet. Even though she knew that she'd done the right thing for her daughter, it didn't make the loss any less painful. It left a deep void inside Brookie. She needed something to fill it, and fast. So throughout the summer of 1985, she went to the mall to do some retail therapy, using a five-finger discount. The psychology behind shoplifting is understudied and limited, but according to Terence Darrell Shulman, the founder of the Shulman Center for Compulsive Theft, Spending, and Hoarding, most shoplifters steal out of feelings of anger, loss, disempowerment, and entitlement. In many cases, shoplifting is just a temporary solution to a very internal and persistent problem. This might explain why Christine soon joined her daughter for sprees at the mall. Both women had experienced great loss. Brookie, a child. Christine, a husband. It was a shared struggle, and they leaned on each other for support. Their petty crimes became a mother-daughter bonding experience. They even created an elaborate system of passing off stolen goods to each other. But by November of 1985, mall security guards had caught on to their ways. They alerted authorities, and both women were arrested. That winter, Brookie and her mother were convicted of burglary and sentenced to 30 days behind bars. But it seems like the month in jail actually did Brookie some good. She realized that if she wanted a better life for herself, then she needed to make some changes. She was tired of juggling dead-end jobs. She wanted a real career, something that offered a fatter paycheck and a greater sense of security. Given that she was living in San Jose, the capital of Silicon Valley, there was no better field than tech. Except Brookie wasn't some wizard engineer. She didn't even have a college degree. But it turned out she was a skilled technical writer, able to make complicated concepts easy to understand. Pretty soon, Brookie was a rising star in her field and was making a good living for herself. So good that in 1993, the 39-year-old bought a house in Los Banos and moved in with her 61-year-old mother. From the outside looking in, Brookie seemed to have her act together. But her mother was still a thorn in her side. The two fought constantly. Despite this, Brookie couldn't break free from Christine's orbit. I mean, they did everything together. Shopping for groceries, shoplifting at malls, and shopping for love. 
Around this time, Brookie and her mother frequented local AA meetings, but neither of them were there to work on themselves. They attended meetings specifically meant for indigenous people, which was strange enough on its own, but for reasons that have truly never been explained, the two women claimed they had indigenous ancestry. No one believed them, but AA is an environment of support and acceptance, so they weren't turned away. Perhaps that explains why Brookie and Christine were so bold about what they did next. They knew they could get away with it. Both women used the meetings to troll for dates and flirt with men. They were there to get attention, an ego boost. Brookie in particular always showed up wearing heavy makeup and provocative clothing, drawing every eye in the room. She fed off that. Ever since high school, she'd been praised for her good looks. It was quite possibly one of the only things that made her feel wanted. So she leaned into it even more in adulthood and flirted with any man who gave her attention. And in 1994, one man did just that. The two started up a passionate romance. But given Brookie's toxic bond with her mother, things started to feel cramped. Two's company, but three, well, that's a crowd. Someone had to go. Coming up, Brookie chooses love over blood. Now, back to the story. In early 1994, 40-year-old Brookie Lee West met the love of her life at an alcohol rehabilitation program for indigenous people. His name was Howard Simon St. John, and he was a member of the Sioux Nation. The 35-year-old recovering alcoholic was overweight, with long, unkempt hair, rotten teeth, and no steady job or home of his own. He also had a colorful rap sheet. I'm talking assault and battery, robbery, and drunk driving. So yeah, he had a past. Everyone was a bit confused when the two started dating. They didn't understand what Brookie saw in Howard. She was a bombshell with a promising career. Howard was unemployed and kind of a slob. In their eyes, he was beneath her. And yet she was talking about walking down the aisle with him. If you can believe it, there's actually a word for this phenomenon. It's called hypogamy. And it's the act of marrying someone of a lower social and economic class than your own. There's an innate power imbalance built into hypogamous relationships. In many cases, one person is more of the alpha and the other is more of the beta. According to psychotherapist Dr. Sonia Rhodes, alphas are more self-reliant and success-oriented. They're typically the breadwinners and decision-makers in their relationships. Betas, on the other hand, are more dependable and supportive. They're more appreciative and often put their partners before themselves. Because of these differences, Dr. Rhodes posits that alpha females in heterosexual relationships may actually fare better with a beta male. That's because the beta male is so secure, he's not threatened by the alpha woman. He'll support and respect his partner and care about what's important to her. Of course, there's also the possibility that Brookie simply felt safe with Howard. In childhood, she'd been neglected and abandoned by her parents. In adulthood, she'd had multiple failed marriages, discarded by the very men who had promised to love her until the end. That had to have affected her self-esteem. 
And now, here was a man who worshipped the very ground she walked on. As far as I can tell, Howard pretty much did whatever she asked of him. And unlike her mother, Christine, he also made her feel loved and valued. Brookie couldn't get enough of him. Within weeks of dating, she invited Howard to move in with her and her mother. But Christine hated Howard. To be fair, the 62-year-old had never really liked any of Brookie's boyfriends. But to her, Howard was the worst of them all. He was rude, he was rough around the edges, and during his time away from the rehabilitation center, he had relapsed. Christine badmouthed him to anyone who would listen, hoping they'd break up. But if we read between the lines a little bit, Christine likely hated Howard because he was pulling Brookie away from her. Before, Christine and Brookie were partners in crime, literally. But now that Brookie had Howard to lean on, she didn't need her mother. In fact, she had no reason to even keep Christine around at all. And as the tension in the house became more and more unbearable, Brookie got tired of her mother's meddling and drew a line in the sand. If Christine couldn't accept the man she loved, then good riddance to her. Eventually, Brookie bought a van, packed it with Christine and all of her things, then drove it over 80 miles to the city of Santa Clara. She hit the brakes at a city parking lot and, according to a family member familiar with the situation, told her mother, This car is yours. This is where you are living. Don't come see me anymore. And just like that, Christine was out of the picture. When Brookie got home, she felt as if a weight of negativity had been lifted. While the two had certainly found a way to coexist over the years, the truth was that even the best version of Christine cast a shadow in Brookie's life. Brookie had just been too close to her mother to realize it. But now, Brookie was seeing the light. Anything was possible. And it was clear Brookie was ready for bigger and better things. Because in February, she traded in her old Toyota and bought herself a flashy white Jaguar. But the monthly payment on the car was steep. Soon enough, Brookie was overwhelmed by bills. And Howard wasn't exactly pulling his weight. He spent most of his days drinking at home or gambling at a casino. Seemingly, Brookie was cool about it all. As long as Howard was good to her, she let him do just about anything. But that kind of love often comes with strings. And by the spring of 1994, Brookie wanted to cash in on all of her generosity. According to Howard, she asked him to help her commit insurance fraud. She wanted him to make it look like someone stole her car and destroyed it. That way, she'd no longer have to make the hefty payments, and she could get a sizable payout at the end. At first, Howard was taken aback. Despite his relapse and his rap sheet, he really wanted to be a better man. He wasn't so sure about committing a crime. But when he thought about all that Brookie had done for him, he was conflicted. She'd saved him in more ways than one, and he felt pressured to do the same. So, allegedly, on the night of March 3rd, 1994, he drove the Jaguar north to Milpitas, just outside of San Jose. He parked the car on a dirt road, then set it on fire. It's unclear if Brookie was with him at the time. To this day, she swears that she wasn't involved in an insurance scam. 
Either way, the Jaguar was burned to a crisp, and an anonymous caller alerted the authorities. About an hour after that, Brookie reported the car missing. She claimed she'd been at the movies with her boyfriend when someone had stolen her Jag. Which, okay, car theft happens regularly enough, but since the insurance claim was just over $18,000, the insurance agency wanted to make sure everything was on the up and up. Enter Dwight Bell, the dogged insurance investigator assigned to the case. In a past life, he was a highway patrolman, and he was an expert on vehicle fires. When he looked at the details of the report, he saw some red flags. First, nothing of value was stolen, not the stereo and not even the tires. Second, it was hard to believe that someone would steal an expensive car only to set it ablaze. In his opinion, it didn't seem like a legit car theft, but with no evidence to support his hunch, Brookie's insurance claim was approved and a check was eventually cut. Brookie and Howard were back to living the high life. Within a month or so, they bought a new Corvette, and in April, they drove down to Reno and got married. But the newlyweds weren't in the clear just yet. Despite receiving the check, Dwight Bell wasn't done with his investigation. He still wanted to speak with Brookie and hear more about the night of the car theft. All of this made Brookie extremely nervous. She likely sensed that her scheme was unraveling, that she might even wind up back in prison. Suddenly, she needed a way out. But on the morning of May 21, 1994, 40-year-old Brookie pretended as if everything was okay. As she cleaned up the garage with Howard, she stopped for a moment to kiss her husband. Then she held him in her arms, and the two started dancing in front of their neighbors. But after that sweet moment, things went totally off the rails. Back inside their house, the two got into a heated argument. By the evening, all that screaming and yelling turned physical. Brookie swore she thought Howard was going to hurt her, so she grabbed the loaded pistol hidden in her purse and pulled the trigger. The bullet went straight through Howard's neck. Blood spilled out of him as he stumbled outside and screamed for help. His wife, he said, was trying to kill him. Unfortunately for Howard, she wasn't done trying. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two of Brookie's story, where we'll follow the end of Brookie and Howard's romance and cover a crime so grisly that it was even considered the work of the devil. For more information on Brookie Lee West, amongst the many sources we used, we found Witch by Glenn Pewitt, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. And if you want to hear more stories like Brookie and Christine's, be sure to check out my other podcast, Malicious Moms. We'll see you next time. 
Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Joel Callen, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson.